This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I'm speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you guys, I make music from my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the extreme pleasure of interviewing my dear friend Keith Pinto. You can check that interview out and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site pantheonpodcasts.com as well as our site bluegirlproductions.net or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today I'm speaking with a living legend, record producer, audio engineer, record label owner, and co-designer of the A-Designs Mix Factory, Mr. Tony Shepard. When it comes to the world of the audio industry, Tony Shepard is quite the force to be reckoned with. Starting off as a kid, he's one of the few that can say with confidence that he read the covers of the albums. And from that experience of reading covers and learning what it meant to engineer and record music for people to listen to, he found what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. Today, Tony and I talk a little bit of of everything, really, from his earliest memories of wanting to be in recording to what he started doing in his very first studios and starting to get into the change in technology and what we are doing now. So... I'm going to shut up and let you hear my conversation with Tony Shepard. Mr. Tony Shepard, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure being here, believe me. Well, thank you for being on. Um, I think everybody knows your career. Everybody that knows your work knows what you enjoy doing, Um, certainly a lot of the stuff in the R&B space and uh, your work with Quincy Jones and, and many others. H- how do you get started into the recording industry? You're, you're one of the few people that I think I've, I've heard uh, say in the past that you knew what you wanted to do from, from the earliest stages. You know, when I, when I knew what I wanted to do, I was probably 
11 or 12 years old. And I was reading the back of albums when people would look in, and, and at me and say, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm reading the credits. They're like, the what? <laughs> and they look at you like, you know, what is this kid on? You know, like you're reading the credits of an album. And it's like, yeah, there's this, there's this guy named, you know, George Massenberg and he's recording earth, wind and fire. And I just, I, I've got to be like that. I've got to learn that sound. And you start, you start developing this taste for how an engineer really can craft a record. And it becomes one of those things by the time I was 14, I just like, I have to, I have to do this for a living. It's just one of those things that just grabs a hold of your soul. And you just realize this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Right. Right. I get that. I know there are very few people who, who really read the credits. So props to you. <laughs> so when was it that you start actually getting into the engineering side? Was it high school, college? I, I know you started a studio right after college. You, Lynn 9000 was, uh, was the biggest yeah. purchase of yours. <clears throat> yeah. As as I'm aware. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I worked when I was in high school um, for the media services department of Andrews university in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And I was the kid who, you know, set up projectors and set up recording devices and, and went through and I learned from the ground up from uh, a wonderful gentleman named Paul Denton. And he was, he kept saying, you know, you're really too young to do this, but you have such a love for this. I, I'm going to hire you. And I think back in the day, I think I was making, I want to say something like $2 and 50 cents an hour, or I started off maybe at a buck 75, but to me, it wasn't about the money. It was just like, wow, this is, this is really what I want to do. So I want to learn as much as I can. And, um, I never really got the technical side of everything. This is what a diode does. This is what this does. This is what this does. You know, I didn't get that for me. It was about grabbing a piece of gear, grabbing a microphone, going in and recording. And where do I place the microphone to make everything sound amazing? So that was my mentality throughout um, junior high and high school. And when I got to college, I worked in the media services department for Loma Linda university. Hmm. Um, and it was one of those things, again, where I just kept, you know, kept crafting my craft, kept getting better at it. You know, I would go around, if there was anything to be recorded, I would volunteer for because I wanted to be good at recording. And um, by the time I got out of college, my, my major in college was photography and I had a business minor. But by the time I got out of college, it was um, the first thing I did was opened up a small studio. And I think the first piece of gear I bought, uh, my partner and I uh, bought an Insonic Mirage. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was an Insonic Mirage and all the sounds came on a little floppy disk. Right. And um, it was cool. And we went from that to um, we bought a Lin 9000 before they had the uh, sampling option. It was only based around what the ROMs were inside the Lin 9000. Gotcha. And then that kept crapping out. And um, 
And finally, I was just like, we've, we, you know, we've got to set our sights higher. If we're going to do this, we've got to really do this right. So about that time, um, I was eyeballing for many years, maybe two or three years, the Sinclair. Oh yeah. And, yeah. And we bought a used Sinclair for, I think it was the Sinclair two for $24,000. And when I think about, you know, this had no sampling at the time. It's just, just, just this was just a keyboard that played back uh, FM synthesis. Mm-hmm. And, um, I learned how to program a single of air. Um, and that was the jumping off point that really allowed me to kind of do more engineering and programming and kill two birds with one stone. Um, so by the time I got out of college, we were hitting the ground running with, with a studio with a U Sinclair and a Lin 9000 and then Sonic Mirage. And next thing you know, it's a DX7. Right. <laughs> just, we just kept adding to the arsenal of things. And learning how to program stuff. So back then, engineering wasn't just making stuff sound right, you know, in a room of recording. It was also, okay, well, you know, we're going to program all the drums first before we do anything. Mm-hmm. And so that was, a, that was a real added bonus to most of my clients who were coming in saying, I want the beat to sound like this. And I would, you know, you know be able to go in and just swap out sounds and got really adept at working with the Sinclair on stuff. So. Sure. Yeah. It was just one of those things that just kept evolving as I went along from college. That was 85, 1985. Um, right. And I owned two studios, um, 85 and then 86 and 87. Um, and I just, you know, I kept buying new gear and learning that gear and then just making myself available to clients. Like, you know, I can program that sound for you. Um, so it was really cool back in the day. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, obviously, you know, I'm the 19 year old, so I wasn't there, but <laughs> I, I, I've talked a lot about this in, in the past with, with other guests where, you know, it, the role of producer very much changed from, it, well, as much as it stayed the same, which is, you know, getting the right sounds, making, making the, making the song fit the proper way making it sound correct um and interfacing with an engineer in that regard but it was really kind of in the 80s when synthesis really got going and became the became the whole song that the role of producer and engineer went from you know getting the sound right in the room which is you know you you say you weren't on the technical side and I, I, in a way you know the the getting a mic in the room to make it sound good is a technical side of its own mm-hmm. and then that moves into how to program a dx7 mm-hmm. or a synclavier mm-hmm. or any one of them what was it like living through that shift and and you know how how, how has that shift sort of changed over that time and the the difference of what an engineer and a producer are now versus 30 years ago um, you know, it's pretty interesting how um, in the 80s and mid, really in the mid 80s, things started taking a technological shift. Um, by the end of the 80s, people were recording um, direct to disc on Sinclair's. So not only were they replacing 
at the beginning of the 80s, it was all about analog tape machines and, you know, a 24 track. And in that decade alone, everyone was shifting out of that into a, um, a hard disk recording system. Um, so that was really a pivotal um, time for so many reasons. Um, I, it's, it's kind of interesting to see now that I look back at it you don't really think about things shifting and you see the shift going on. You see the shift happening. But now that I look back at it, by the time we were into the nineties, things had dramatically shifted. We were no longer using analog tape machines per se. Um, the big thing was if you were going to use analog, you had to use Dolby SR. You had to, there were just any number of things where people started shifting out of, uh, program sounds and started moving into sample libraries and it was just like wow it, it, it used to be a time where you you could make a living programming sounds and now it's like well we, we've already got ten thousand sounds on this disc we don't really need you to learn how to program anymore right so it was it was a technological shift that was happening but nobody really knew where it was going they just kept pressing forward so it's kind of a weird time now that I look back at it, because by the time the 90s started, I sold my studio. Um, there was a group called Take Six. Still is a group called Take Six. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Mervyn Warren was leaving the group, and he had come to my studio a number of times from 87 through 90. And um, he said, I'm going to resign from Take Six. And I think, you know, you do some amazing work. Would you want to come down to Nashville and work with me? And I said, yeah, let's, let's make it happen. So packed up my studio here in LA and moved down to Nashville, Sinclair and all. And um, it was that shift again where things were kind of, it's weird. Things were on the cutting edge between going, like people are stepping away from analog with Dolby SR and then start using a 3340, a 3324 and a 3348s eventually came along. But they right. started moving into digital recordings. And I remember it being one of those things where you saw the shift coming, but you, you just had to hang on because there were two or three different formats that were dropped out. And within that next decade, even, things had gone from you know $200,000 uh, 3348s to ADATs and uh, Tascam um, 8-track recorders. Right. The Still DA digital. Thing. Yeah. But it was like, if you, if you look at how things had shifted over the decade, those were huge leaps. Huge. Right. Right. I, I know, you know, I spoke to uh, an old friend of my father's on the, on the show, a guy by the name of Craig Dreyer. Mm -hmm. And he, he started a studio in the time when tape was, phased out but it wasn't pro tools yet it was still adat and d88 and all of the all of their contemporaries and you know the the thing that he said that stuck out to my head always was you know if if that technology wasn't around my my records early early on then w wouldn't have been possible yeah yeah you know it's i i i think back now I remember the first time I saw the early version of Pro Tools when it was Sound Tools. Right. And I think it was probably 90, 
93 or 94, somewhere in there, 93, 93, 94, 95. And I thought, well, this isn't really anything new because we already had direct-to-disc recording with Sinclair. Mm-hmm. But somehow the 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 way it was approached was different than it was with the Sinclairs. It was much more affordable. It wasn't you had to have a quarter million dollar Sinclair system in order to make something happen. And instead of um I remember in you know, we had a really expensive Sinclair system and then all of a sudden you had the Roland S seven seventy come along and that was a what, a seven thousand dollar sample unit. Right. And it was just like, wow. And it came with all the libraries. And it came like, it's like, wow, this is amazing. So these huge leaps started happening and making it accessible for everyone to get involved. Mm -hmm. And that really changed it because now you no longer had to drop a quarter of a million dollars on a a box in order to get digital. You could get digital in in a, you know, a much cheaper, you know, compared to quarter of a million bucks seven thousand dollars for a, a sampler for Roland was just like that's that's affordable man right i and mean so you know that's a huge leap once again you know yeah and comparative to everything else out there that you know I, i'm sure i'm sure a lot of people listening at least in my generation go seven grand for something what, what yeah. the hell's what the hell's that but the 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 realization that technology was changing and this Rapidly. this was this was the the pinnacle of of kind of the the turning point and and yeah. I, I guess in a way how we're able to have this conversation right now. Sure. Um, I mean RAM. Like mm-hmm. I, the first hard drive I ever bought was a hard drive or first musical hard drive I ever bought was a used ten megabyte drive. It was a Winchester hard disk uh, drive. It came in this big blue box for the Sinclair. Um, and the guy who was doing music for, I think, Cheers sold it to me. Hmm. And I bought a used, and we thought it was a great deal, a used 10 meg hard drive for $2,500. Right. At the time, that, <laughs> for, for that much storage in, in that era, that was nothing. Right. It's just like, wow. And you look back at it now, you know, you, you see these thumb drives that now have, you know, oh, this is a four terabyte drive, thumb drive. And you're like, <laughs> it's what? A four terabyte drive? You know, it's just, you, you, you look at the leaps and bounds that have been made and you just think, my God, what, this thing we've come over the last 50, 20, 15, 20 years of, of leaps of like hard disk recording and, and stuff that, you know, now we can do things and that we could only dream about before. Which is great, but you know, has it taken too far of a turn? You know, do you really do you have artists that have talent anymore? And maybe talent is optional at this point. Don't know. <laughs> well, I th- I'd like to hope the talent is still there in in the truest of music. You know, I, I listen to. I'm especially a fan of the of what people are labeling as the throwback music. You know, the mm-hmm. Redbone and. Mm-hmm kind of thing in the in the silk sonics of the world mm-hmm. and and you definitely see that those guys have talent you know? yes and I, there are some there are some who i won't name uh, <laughs> who who are a little bit more confusing um i i think i think the technology and 
maybe maybe you agree with this, maybe you don't, but I think the technology has done two things in that it has allowed those who are creative and do have genuine talent to come forward into the limelight. But likewise, on on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's it's afforded a whole bunch of people who don't really have that same drive or talent or passion or interest um, even uh, to to be able to do the same kind of work or or be on the same stages. Yeah, I think I think there's a good and a bad to the democratization of music. It's great that everybody can have, you know, um, the, the capability of doing that. But in this whole I make beats generation, there's this thing of just, you know, just because you can put a beat together doesn't mean that it's musical. Right. And I think, you know, that has been the biggest, for me, the biggest problem when you have conversations with people. It's like, yeah, I do beats. It's like, okay, but I, that doesn't mean anything to me. What does that mean? So what? I mean, you know, is it musical? Does it, is it, do you have a melody? And I'm still one of these people who's still drawn to a melody. And I, I, I'm still lost in the the notion that somehow that there's a whole generation growing up that just listens to it and goes on. It's got a great beat. I don't care. And it's like, wow. Okay. Well, I guess that's possible, but yeah, let's, you know, so it has changed how I do things in the industry and it's changed who my clients are. Um, I have been, I've been blessed to work with a lot of clients who are real singers. Right. Um, and I get calls from people who are real singers who, you know, it, you know, vocals still matter. Pitch still matters. Uh, melody still matters. And, um, that's kind of hard for them to walk away from as an artist. It's like, all of those things matter to me. I can't, I can't just do an album of beats, you know? Right. Right. Well, I mean, just as a, you're talking about people with real pipes and, and real talent you've you've worked with people like whitney she she definitely had yeah real talent and and real real sure. uh, real vocal chops and and she was real um, yeah what's it like working with a with a person like that with a whitney houston i think all the artists who you work with who are at that level um you know, Barbara Streisand, uh, Kenny Loggins, you know, people who are real singers. I don't think their mindset changes. They still want the best performance they can do and they'll listen to it. And they'll, I mean, they'll definitely take other people's advice. They'll sit back and say, I think I can do better. It's like, I don't think anybody could do better than what you just put down, <laughs> you know, but they're always pushing themselves to be the best that they can be because their standard of, or goals are from people who, you know, the generation before them, the Aretha's, the, you know, the Ella Fitzgerald's, the people who can go in and nail something in one or two takes and just like walk out of there. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and I said to him, how long are your vocal sessions? And he said, I don't know, six, seven hours. And I was just like, how many vocal takes are you doing? He goes, I don't know. We've go about, you know, 90, 90, 95, 100 takes. And I'm like, it's like, dude, if they can't nail the song in like six or seven takes, you got a problem. You have a real, I don't know if you have an artist there 
as much as you are creating an artist. Right. And I think that's one of the things that the, the, the people who, you know, have hired me to get a focal sound, it's like they were real artists in that they, they, you're capturing an amazing performance. Yes, your job is to, to make sure that it sounds great, but you also have to make sure that your job is to make sure that they have an environment, a safe environment to create. They want to walk in there and everything is sounding great and they sound great in the headphones. And it's like, you know, you get the whatever, you know, you're part psychologist when you're working with artists like that. Right. Um, you sit there and you find out what's the best, you know, you do a little research. You ask someone else, hey, when you worked on so-and-so, so-and-so project, what did they like? Is the, is the, what's the mood like? Is the lights up? Are the lights down? Are they, you know, is the temperature cold? Is it hot? I mean. All of those things matter and you find out those peccadillos so that when they come into your place, you can make sure that they're turning out the best vocals they can. And a lot of times they'll walk in, if they're in great voice, they will literally walk in and nail it in like two or three takes and you're done. And if you talk right. to anybody who's, who's recorded any of these artists, you know, they spend a lot of time, you know, they vary. Some of the artists spent time crafting that sound over like a year or two in the studio. They may have three different drummers that they bring in on a record, but they have a definite idea of what they're wanting to do. And some drum, some people are like, I'm going to come in here. I think, I think Alan Sides told a story where uh, Frank Sinatra came into the session um, and they had no mic check. <laughs> he literally walked in. It was Quincy conducting. They, he walked to the mic. He, he put on his headphones and he started singing. Sure. <laughs> it's like, you know, those guys know what they want. It, it, your job is to capture everything that they do. And, and Al was certainly one of those people who had, had amazing stories about people who walk in and it's like, yeah, that's a first take. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. I mean, there are, there are times when um, I've done rough mixes that have ended up, many times, I've done rough mixes that have ended up on the album. Right. And, uh, and that's a, that's a wonderful feeling. I think, I think I, I could be wrong, but I think Dave Wrights has, has the story about, um, the, and I will always love you from Whitney. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the rough mix that they did. Really? I, I don't quote me on that. And Dave would be a good person to interview, but I, I'm pretty sure that that is the rough mix that Dave did. And they were like, it's not going to get any better than that just turn it in for mastering. And uh, I did a boys to men project. Man, this must have been forever ago. And um, Mervyn Warren was producing and he said, Hey, come over and let's just put a rough mix together. They want to hear something. So I was like, yeah. So we spent about maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes on the rough mix and just knocked it out, you know, finished up everything. And it was on his Mackie, 32 by eight board, the old Mackie analog. Sure. Yeah. Right. Sure. And, uh, we had the task cams, we had all the D eight eights, uh, the D yeah, the D A 88s all locked together. And, um, we had everything, you know, we were knocking out the rough and a year after that voice men's management came back and said, uh, they had, they had done a mix, a final mix between that time. Mm-hmm. And they said, we need credits for uh, the mix. And Mervyn had sent them the credits. 
And he said, no, I think you sent us the wrong mix. We're not using this mix. We're using the other mix. And he goes, what other mix? It's like the mix you turned in a year ago. It's like, that's a rough mix. It's like, well, that's the one we're using. The guys heard the other mix that they did and they didn't, they didn't like it. They, they liked that one you guys did from a year ago. And he was like, wait, we spent only like 20 minutes on that one. What do you mean? That they're, that's what they're going to go with. And he's like, that's, you know, they, they, you know, no offense to you, but that's, that's the song they're going to go with. And that ended up being on the album. And it was like mixed on a, on a old Mackie, you know, 32 by eight. We just had everything spread out. We were just trying to knock it out and, you know, no automation, no nothing. Right. Just like, those, those boards aren't, those boards aren't like, you know, they're not award-winning by any means. No, not by a long shot. <laughs> no. But we had tracked everything through Neves, and you know, it was vintage microphones, and it was an it was an acapella cut for like the first half of the record. And they, you know, the record label and management and Boys to Men was like, yeah, that's the one we're going to go with. <laughs> wow. So it's one of those things where you never know. You 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 do your best that you can with what you have, because you don't know. Your, you know, I, I don't know, it may, may or may not, may not work. You know, somebody's going to hear that and go, dude, that's exactly what we're looking for. Right. That's it. Don't, we're, you know, don't try and remix it. Or I think Bruce Houdin tells a story about, you know, one of from the songs from Michael's album. And they were on like, they, I think they went up to like mix 98 or something. Mm -hmm. And then when they're all said and done, they ended up using the one that was mixed too. And it's like, we've done like 98 versions of this. And what you went, you know, what made it on the album was the second mix. Mm -hmm. It was like this raw thing that just kind of worked and no one could explain. It. It's just like, there was a vibe to it. So, you know, do the best you can with what you got, man. Cause you know, it's, it's, I, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of artists where it's the second or third take and they walk in and they're, they're done. Mm -hmm. And if you can't capture it in that time, it's like, they're out. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's something that I that I encountered a, f a few weeks ago. I was doing a, a microphone demo. AKG sent us out this uh, USB mic. It's a cool mm -hmm. little mic. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, called the Lyra. It looks like a, a vintage mic of theirs, but it's a USB mic, multiple polar pattern, all mm -hmm. that good stuff. And so I ended up being the only production podcast on on Pantheon, uh, the, the network as a whole. I ended up recording a track with it. Yeah. And uh I decided, you know, if I'm if I'm going to do this properly and do the full mix with it, I'm I'm going to put guitars on it and guitar solos. Mm. The guitar solo because I was doing it as an improv. I I had a general idea, but I I didn't write it. You know, I was I was kind of writing it as I went. I I it took me 40 takes to to get a guitar solo that I liked because mm. you know, writing it as I'm playing it. The rhythm guitar tracks, one take over with completely done no big deal you know um so it really is it it really is a case of like sometimes it's the inspiration and capturing the moment that's it right right you're you're there to do that and to do it in such a way that you know you're not you're not creating problems for the artist and you know it's like well we want to capture this but you know you got to move two inches to the left it's like you know what i'm going to stand where i'm going to stand and you capture what you capture right like, right oh shit. okay here we go <laughs> you know and and with some of these artists you may only get one or two three four takes before it's like they're done right there's nothing left in the tank and they they you know they've gone as far as they can go 
because sometimes they're just tired or, you know, other problems uh, arise or, you know, it's just like, I've learned you got to capture what you can capture. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And capture it with what you have. Yeah. Um, how has it been for you with, with all of this and doing, um, have you had sessions in the middle of all this pandemic stuff? How's, how's being socially distant and, and sessions for you? 2020 was probably my busiest year. Really? Yeah. Wow. Hats off to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because most of the people, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, most of the people who um, were artists were off the road and everybody decided it's my turn to go in and work on a new project. That's fair. So you had, um, you know, every artist in the world parked like writing songs at home and it's like, well, let's demo these songs. And the next thing you know, the demos are turned into an album. Now, you know, everybody is, as I like to say, is, is at the starting gate waiting for the pandemic to end so they can start releasing all their product. Right. And 2020 was that, that kind of, uh, you know, lineup where everybody was just like at home in their private studios or working here or working there and setting things up so that they could just get the products ready. And in 2021 or 2022, depending on how long you're still working on something, these guys are ready to start dropping stuff. And so I, I just, I never stopped working. I just never stopped working. And I never stopped traveling either. Every quarter I went down, I was traveling. I was on a plane somewhere, going somewhere, doing something. Um, sometimes there were only like eight or nine people on the plane, but, you know, it's like, I'm flying, I'm gone. Sure. So yeah, it's, I think people, it was good and bad for a lot of people. It was good in that they could really step back for about the first month or two. A lot of vocalists I know who are used to touring and they could step back and say, wow, I'm just home with the wife and the kids and the whatever. And they could spend some quality time, but then they started getting restless and started saying, you know what? It's time to write. Right. Time to record. Let's get in. Let's do an album. We got this downtime. We don't know how long it's going to be. Let's do some work. And so I have, uh, you know, most of 2020 was just nonstop. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful. Believe me, because I know a lot of guys who just weren't working. Their artists weren't. It's like they they took off and they like left the states and like I'm going to, you know, literally parts unknown and not coming back for a while until this thing blows over. So they were, you know, they were kind of screwed on that. So, well, wasn't it Jared Leto who at the beginning of all this was somewhere in the middle of nowhere on a remote Island didn't even know the pandemic existed until he came back to civilization. Really? Yeah. There was, there was, there was something about that. He was like, I'm on, I was on this whole detox retreat thing and all of a sudden I come back to come back to the rest of the world and everybody's in the middle of a lockdown pandemic. I should have, yeah. I should have stayed in the middle. Of <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a friend who went to Hawaii and he just, he just went over there. It was the beginning of March. He was only going to be there for two weeks. He ended up staying for nine months. Sure. Sure. He's just like, dude, I'm not leaving here. There's no, there's no point to me leaving. And he ended up recording an entire record there. Huh. I'm like, wow. Good for you. You know? Hey, if you can do it, I yeah, I know um, friend of 
of of mine, a friend of my family's, this guy John O'Manson, again another mm-hmm. early guest of the show. Um, mm-hmm. He he did a lot of work in Italy. Um, mm. He's actually a bit of a star in Italy. Um, mm. uh, and he was doing an Italian tour. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it got really bad in Italy. Mm. And basically, the Italian government and the United States government at the beginning of last year said, hey, you need you should probably start cutting this early or you're going to be stuck there. You know, because... Mm. Italy, we're locking down. You, like you're not going to be able to leave. Sure. Um, and so he he cut his tour short, and then when he came home, he had to uh, quarantine away from his family for two weeks. And yeah. uh, then then as soon as he got back, he was right back in his studio writing. He was a lovely studio out in Santa Fe, called wow. uh, called the Kitchen Sink with a wonderful audience board. I've yet to go there, but I I'm I'm always enticed by by the gear that he put in there. You know, I think a lot of people really, and I, if you talk to manufacturers, um, I think Sweetwater had their best year ever. I wouldn't deny, I, I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I, I spoke to Ivana Manley mm-hmm. and she's awesome. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's phenomenal. Well, we, the funny thing is, is, uh, both of my parents worked for Bill Graham and actually my, my father went to her alma mater. She's, uh, she's two years, his junior. So she, uh. She, they don't have a lot of common friends, but she knew his band and and knew mm-hmm. knew his circle. Um, so when she says that it was a guest lecture from Bill Graham at Columbia University that that really pushed her into the music world, that was that was my dad's frat brothers, uh, one of which being uh, Bill's son David, mm. uh, who scheduled that. <laughs> So so there's like this this funny bit of history uh mm-hmm. shared between Havana and I. Anyhow, it was it was interesting talking to her because it seemed like she had a pretty good year and they couldn't really get in it early on. They weren't able to really do much at the factory. She she had to, you know, get people to go in, prepare certain parts, then the next uh the next department would take that pe- those pieces bring them home to their home workbenches, assemble them, bring them back to the factory. Next guys would take them, you know, it was a, it was a strange sounding way to work, but it seemed, it seemed to work for them. And if it's working for them, Hey, good for them. Yeah. If it's working, it's working. But if you talk to most of the manufacturers, they thought it was going to be a horrible year, but it ended up being a really good year for almost I can't think of a manufacturer that didn't do fairly well in 2020. Um, people were getting stimulus checks or they were getting their refunds or any number of things. And they were like, well, it's time to take, you know, the, uh, I had, I know people who were like, oh, I'm going to take down my entire system and have it rewired. Or I'm going to go back in and sell this gear and then buy a whole bunch of new gear. And so people were kind of revamping their studios through 2020 and it, it kind of worked for the manufacturers. They were selling gear left and right. Right. Of course. So, yeah, it's good yeah. stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. I know up here, all the, all the gigging guys, um, all the gigging guitar players, especially you were seeing a bunch of silver faced twins that were road worn and, but, mm-hmm. but sounded gorgeous. And I know, I know quite a few studio people ended up buying a bunch of well-loved, well-gigged twin reverbs and super reverbs and, and mm-hmm. plexis and all that stuff. 
that that we're going to become beautiful studio amps but it were prior to 2020 the 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 beer soaked gigging amps of of uh <laughs> bay area musicians everywhere <laughs> right yeah and it's it's really good that i mean like i said i i'm i'm you know it's kind of there's it's kind of a double-edged thing it's like it's sad that everybody came off the road but some of these guys it's like they never would have come off the road right it's like you you're never home. I never see you anymore cuz you know the only way to make money now is gigging. And so there some of these guys were out like for two or three years in a row. Mm-hmm. It's like dude, you're never home. So it's good to see your ass at home hanging out with your family and being a family man again. It's like yeah. And then you know, of course the inevitable okay now it's time to go back on the road cuz I've had enough of the family. It's like you know, but people really kind of got used to the lifestyle, like it's 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 really nice to be able to enjoy this for once. I'm home. I got a little bit of money in the bank, and everything is cool. And I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So right, right. No, it worked for a lot of people. Yeah. Now I'm curious because you you have your name on a piece of gear. How was uh, how was Mix Factory in 2020? Fantastic. I mean, you know, you can always do better, but I think we were. I think every. I put it this way. Every month I was getting a check. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That's, uh, that's fantastic. From from Peter. And he was just like, he's like, is it me? Or people like all of a sudden like buying this thing like crazy. And I said, I, I most of the people I've talked to are just doing exactly what I was saying before. It's like they're revamping their rooms and they're like, you know, wanting to experiment. And we had a demo unit that I think left in May of last year. And it still is not back. It just got passed from one person to another, to another, to another, to another, to another. And then we were getting sales from that. Um, And I just, it it was really different in that we weren't really expecting that kind of stuff. I think everyone thought, well, everybody's off the road. No one's going to buy anything. But that's just not the case. And uh, I think a lot of guys had their eye on that piece of gear and they just decided just to pull the trigger on it. Well, I mean, com- so. compared to other summing mixers, it's it's got a lot of very neat features. I mean, I, I don't, I can't really think. Maybe the maybe the fifty sixty centerpiece, but if if we're talking about rack mount summing mixers, the the right. ones that are kind of the most, I, I guess the most popular would be, uh, I don't remember Neve's uh, Neve's rack mount summing mixer, whatever their name is, but the the Neve and then the Dangerous Gear, the two bus stuff, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, you know, Dangerous has a marketplace that works for them. Right. Um, but every, I, I, I can't tell you how many times, especially last year where we had people who said, you know, I just want to try out and shoot out your danger, you know, the Dangerous versus the Mix Factory and see what it sounds like. And, you know, they're blown away by it. And there's no, I mean, once again, I'm not. Putting, I don't want anybody saying, "Oh, you." I heard you putting down, you know, Dangerous's box. Dangerous's box is great. You know, it's it is what it is. But there's some features that we have, especially we've got. I've got one guy who bought three mix factories, right? And they're all linkable. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was just like, "Dude, when I put all the drums at the bottom, they sound amazing because they're going through three sets of transformers." Right. And he says, "Like, I, I've never had this, you know, the ability to do that. And if I don't like it, I could just bypass it." And it's just like this. I never, I never thought about it. But he said, "You know, during the pandemic, I sat down and I kind of a beat all these different boxes, 
And it was amazing what that box can do. And I'm like, I'm happy you made the choice you did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very thrilled that you bought three boxes, you know? Right. So it's right. it's one of those things that I'm I'm very happy, and I, I know Peter Montesi is a manufacturer of A Designs Audio. I don't think there's some boxes he can't keep in stock. I don't think he could keep enough readies in stock. I mean, the people were they were flying off the shelves. That's a good problem to have. It's a it's a wonderful problem to have. You know, right? Um, it's just weird that you just it's like during a pandemic you had your best year. It's like what? <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's not possible. It's like, well, it's true, you know? So it's kind of cool though. How did since we're since we're on the topic of Mix Factory, how did it come about? I know you were looking for designing designing a uh, a summing mixer for a while. What what was the what was the the incentive to design a summing box? When did you go from how did you find yourself in the in the uh, world of hybrid mixing and, and using summing mixers? For a long time, I mixed in the box. Sure. Um, and uh, I was mixing in the box early 2000. Wow. So yeah, it was it was. I think I think the first big project I mixed was a Kenny Loggins record I did. Um, and we mixed that project. I mixed it like I mixed it all in the box and then just, we just printed it to half inch, uh, Ampex tape. Sure. And, uh, it was fantastic. And Kenny was thrilled and it was just like, this is amazing. It sounds wonderful. Um, and it was great for a long time. And then I became disenchanted with completely mixing in the box because I was giving my um, the entire Pro Tool sessions back to the clients. Right. And I made uh, a fatal mistake in that I um, turned, a, a client asked me to do a mix for him. So this is going to be our single, can you do a mix? I said, sure, no problem. Knocked it out, sent them the whole Pro Tool session back. And about two or three weeks after that, I get a call from a, an engineer. And he said, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working on so-and-so-so's record. And I'm just wondering, I don't know what plugin you used for the vocal on here. I, I can't find that plugin. And I said, well, why would you need that? I mean, the record's done, the, the single's out. Why would you need it? He goes, oh, well, they want me to go back in and use your template for the whole record. And they want me to mix the record based upon your template. Jesus. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah. So we're just dragging all the vocals from, from the next song into this template that you did for the mix of your, of, of the single. And then we're going to run it because it was all, all the vocals were recorded at the same time. So it's all the mic, it's all the same treatment and it's pretty much all the same levels. So we're, we're just, you know, just changing the levels and I just need to know what plugins you used. <laughs> I was just like, wow i was blown away and i said well you know what i can't remember what plugin it was and don't ever call me again and it was at that moment in time i thought you know what i need to put some boxes in between um that are going to aid the mix and also make it so that if you ever decide to you were going to rip me off again you would have to buy those individual boxes in order to pull it off a you know mix of mine 
Sure. And uh, so I started doing analog summing. And I was using another company at first. Um, and I kept talking to Peter Montesi, who owns A Designs Audio. And I said, dude, I want to do a summing box with my name on it. And I've been working with Peter for a number of years. And he said, well, you know, who do you want to design it? And I said, well, let's get Paul Wolf because I really like the audio that, that Paul, uh, Paul's approach to audio is really great. Um, and so I said, let's, let's have Paul Wolf design it. And I told him what I wanted. And we sat down, I think at lunch and maybe three weeks later, he had a prototype up and running. Wow. <laughs> and I was just like, what the hell? Quick turnaround, I, I, I know. And I, I sketched out. I said, I wanted to look like this. I wanted to look like this. I wanted to have these buttons. I wanted to have this and this and this. And then he literally went away and three weeks later was like, I've got a box for you to play with. It's not right yet, but I want you to test it out. And we were like, you know, we were blown away. And then it was just like, okay, well, it's a matter of finding out now, you know, because there's a transformer in there. So it's a matter of finding out which transformer do you want in there? It's steel or, you know, what kind of sound do you want? And it took us longer to pick a transformer than it did to actually get the box overall design because I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted for the D subs and all those other things. And uh, the the mechanics of the box, Paul just like knocked out. Sure. And I was just so thankful. I was like, like dude, do you, do you, you know, but he, it was this kind of sonic thing where it's just like, this is what I'm looking for. And then on my two bus, the way I kind of have worked um, my my two bus, there uh, I go out of Pro Tools into you know the Mix Factory, and then out of the Mix Factory into uh, the A Designs EMEQ, mm -hmm. um, and it is I used to have the 500 series uh, at the time, and then Peter Montesi decided to make a rack mount version of this, a 19 inch rack mount. And I uh, I put it on my two bus and it, it's a Pultec type EQ, right? Nice and round and warm and just wonderful. And I that was that was like you know that was on my two bus. Once I got him, like that's that stayed on my two bus. At first, I actually had a hammer, and I ran all my vocals through all the hammer just to add this like wonderful, you know, tube sound uh, on on because I was doing outputs. So all my outputs were kind of assigned like this. Uh, outputs three and four were all vocals, usually lead vocals. Output five and six was all bottom end stuff, like kick, toms. Output seven and eight were, say, guitars. Uh, output, you know, 11 and 12 would be keys. Output 13 and 14 would be strings. So everything was kind of mapped out. And then what wasn't, was kind of left over was in one and two. So like maybe snares were out there or whatever. And all of the vocals, when they went out, went out of output three and four into the A Designs hammer. Mm -hmm. And then I plugged it back into, um, you know, so I would, I would hit the patch bay and then have them come back in. So I had all these wonderful analog boxes that were just creating this gorgeous sound. And, you know, when I started sending the clients back the mixes, they were like, it doesn't sound the same. It's like, well, why are you trying to recreate my sound? Why don't you just like ask me to do something? It's like, oh, well, we thought you were still mixing in the box. Like, no, I'm not. I'm using a bunch of analog gear on the outside. And, you know, if you want that, you know, it's, you'd have to figure out what I'm using. And it, it's worked in a lot of ways because it's, 
there's an analog yumminess that you just get that you don't have to work at anymore. Right. And that's what the mix factory was. And then you're going through some EQs and the nail compressor. And then my A to D converter is the head, which is to me the you know best sounding A to D converter out there. Um, the crane song head is just amazing. And then the analog of that would go back to the monitors and the digital of that would go back into Pro Tools and I would record a disc inside the session. Mm-hmm. And I just would bring in and be able to monitor. So anything I had going on, it was great. And I loved the fact that it kind of gave me a sonic boost that, you know, nobody else was using those boxes in that configuration and that can, you know, in conjunction with each other. So it was great. And I, I mean, even today, I mean, I've been using the same setup now for well over 10 years and it just really works. And when you talk to other people, uh, I have a friend, Eric Jackson, he's just like, dude, how are you getting that vocal sound? I'm like, well, and I showed him what I did and he was just like, I, I, I wouldn't have guessed you'd gone through an analog box. dude. I mean, it just sounds amazing. It sounds, you know, especially when you're doing something that doesn't really have to have reverb mm-hmm. and you're just wanting something to caress the vocal, um, putting it through a, a tube box like that. It's a hybrid box, actually. It's not all tube. But putting it through that and it hits that tube, it just sounds amazing. So it's kind of worked out really well. Sure, sure. So of of the gear that you run in your mixes, how how much of it, it percentage-wise, just a rough percentage, how much of it is A-Designs gear? I would say it's all A-Designs gear except for my A to D converters. Gotcha. Yeah. I run my my vocals through the hammer. The um, the two bus is got the EMEQ two, and it's got the nail compressor. And then all of that hits the crane song head, and you know, Bob's your uncle. You're back into Pro Tools or to the monitors. So it, you know, it just works in conjunction with each other really quickly. Um, and I've got two. I I, I talked to Peter one day. I was like, you know, what's the possibility of getting a second hammer? He's like, you really need a second one? I go, well, it'd be great to put on background vocals, you know, because my leads are coming out three and four. My background's coming out seven and eight. And as soon as I plug that in, it just, there's this air on on the hammer that is just gorgeous up top, man. And it's just beautiful. So I've really gotten used to it. And it's, you know, I I, I took a lesson. I think, I think everybody knows how, Chris Lord Algae works, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, this box does this. And when I put it through this box, I never change that box setting. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to go through and I'm going to have, you know, I may buy another box, but it's this box does this. Right. And so my settings never change ever on any of my gear. Really? Yeah. Impressive. No. They well, never change. That was kind of a thing that Al liked doing. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, it, he's, he is, uh, in the grand scheme of, of all of us, he is big G God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, the thing that I've always heard him say, be it an interview or, you know, at his birthday a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. he, he was talking about his love of Fairchilds. Mm. And he went, 
I never use, I, I, I never put the settings on. I, I leave it bypassed, but it's always going through the tubes and transformers because I like the way the circuit sounds bypassed. Yeah. You're going, gee whiz. So, so many people, so many people want to, you know, do so many crazy things to the settings. And there you are just using it as a, as yeah. a piece of in-between gear. I mean, it's, yeah, and, it, it sounds gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. He knew, you know, it's just like, you know, you know, I, people are asking me, it's like, cause I, I have a Bach E47. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to David Bach 10 years ago at a trade show and we've been friends for 25 years. And I said to him, you know, he said, how come you don't own any of my mics? I was like, you don't have a mic I want to buy. <laughs> He's like, well, what do you want? I said, I need a really killer 47. And he said, okay. This was at an AES up in San Francisco. He said, okay, all right. He called me up the week before Christmas that same year, like three months later, two, three months later. And he said, I've got a mic I want you to try. And uh, I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll come down. I'll pick it up. And then I, uh, he said, just let me know what you think. And I went and took it home and I recorded a bunch of vocals on it. And I was just like, okay, you got me. What do you want for the mic? It's just like, this is the mic. And so my vocal chain is a Bach uh, E47 into a, you know, it used to be a 1073. And now I've switched over to the the Ventura uh, mic pre from A Designs because it's that hybrid between an API and a Neve sound. Sure. It's got that thing just like right literally between those two worlds. And, and then I go into a tube tech and the tube tech just, yeah. Tube tech CL one B that's just, you know, that just, that it, it doesn't sound like it's taking, I know some guys who just squish the life out of a vocal. Mm -hmm. There's no dynamic range left to the vocal. There's nothing going on that's, that's helpful in any way. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, it's like, they've got like 25 DB of gain reduction. It's like, Jesus, there's no, there's no life left in this thing. But for me, you can do five to seven dB of gain reduction on a CL1B and it still sounds musical. Sure. Someone can hit a hard note and it just just taps it back down without sucking the life out of it. And it still is musical. And that's the same thing I find that, you know, so many people, you know, like Al has found about the the Fairchilds. It's just like just running it through there. It's just like it just sounds better. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's one of those things. Everybody's got to find something that works for them sonically. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I think if you guys have, you'll enjoy it even more. Tune in next week for part two with Mr. Tony Shepard. Welcome to a special edition hybrid music from Blue Girl slash Blue Girl Gear Talk. Now, I have already talked about this piece of gear and sort of shown it off some, but I haven't done a full in-depth video or audio on it yet. I apologize for the delays, but the delays are almost over. This is the demo of my 1968 Drip Edge Fender Bandmaster, 
which I did everything from guitars, rhythms, and leads, and bass through the Bandmaster, and a Fender 215 cabinet from the Blackface era of Fender. Now, this amp has been treating me well for the past month or more, and I can't wait to share all of the tones I've been able to figure out with it, with you, through the coming months and years. So, for now, here is my current Fender Bandmaster demo. Watch out for the video whenever I can release it. I'm sorry I haven't been able to, but I think you'll get a kick out of this rough demo. Anyways, here it is. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Tony Shepard. It was so great having you on, and I can't wait to hear the rest of our conversation, and I can't wait to share the rest of our conversation with everyone listening. For all of you listening, tune in next week. We're going to have part two with Tony Shepard, and make sure you stay a week after that. We're going to have part three with Tony Shepard as well. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>